Texas lawmakers advance bill to force schools to display Ten Commandments. That's a recent news headline. Texas lawmakers advance bill to force schools to display Ten Commandments. I have questions for you about that. Do you think that's a good idea? Do you think that's a bad idea? Do you offer your opinion about whether or not that's a good idea or a bad idea based upon what you know the Bible says? Do you base your answer to those those questions based upon the fact that you're an American citizen? Why would you answer yes or no whether or not that's a good idea? Well, thank you for being... um, Culturally appropriate and not answering, uh, at least out loud, hold the, hold your thoughts for a moment and we'll come back to it. At least that's the plan. We are talking about the Ten Commandments. We should have opinions about the Ten Commandments. Uh, we're in Exodus, so Exodus chapter 20 is where we find the Ten Commandments. And so hopefully you can find the second book of the Bible, the 20th chapter, Exodus chapter 20. As I like to say, we're looking at the Ten Commandments in their natural habitat. We're not looking at the Ten Commandments from a news article that just came out. We're looking at them in their context in Exodus, and so it's good and important that we do that. As you're finding the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, I want to remind you of a couple of things from a 30,000-foot perspective. I want to remind you that God's law, the Bible teaches, even the New Testament teaches, God's law is good. God's law is good. What he says is true. He, he knows best. And so we would want to say God's law is good. But we would also want to say, as I mentioned last week, God's law is not good news to sinners like you and like me. It will never get us to heaven. It's good, but it's not good news to us because we're lawbreakers of different kinds. And so just by way of review, when Israel hears, no, let me change that even before they hear the commandments. The people of Israel in Exodus 19 say this, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we know enough to say, no. (laughs) Before they even hear what God wants them to do, what he requires, they say, we're totally in. And I like their style, but it doesn't end well for them. And you know that if you've read the Bible much at all. But if we look to the New Testament, we would learn that while it's good, the law. It's not good news. It's important that it causes us to look somewhere else to gain eternal life. We do look to someone else who did perfectly obey all of God, God's commandments, not just the 10, but all of them. And that's how we gain acceptance with God. Last week, we looked at it. We won't today. Galatians chapter three says this, no one is justified before God by the law. No one is declared a law keeper by God, the judge, by law keeping because nobody does it. In other words, no one is justified before God by the law. But then it goes on to say this in Galatians 3.11, the righteous shall live by faith. And clearly, according to the context, even though that wording might be a little bit puzzling, if you read the context, it is that by faith in Jesus, the perfect law keeper, we gain righteousness. We gain a perfect status and we stand before God and God can look at Pat Abendroth, the sinner, or you, the sinner, and say, perfect. I accept them as if they obeyed perfectly because of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So keep all of that in mind as we get into the weeds of it, if you will. God's law is good, but it's not good news to sinners like us. Then also remember, once we are accepted by God, we want to do what's good. We want to do what's right, not for eternal life, but because we have eternal life. And so now we're not terrified by the law anymore. We're actually welcoming it because we know that it is good. So with that in mind, I hope you're ready to go. Ten Commandments, chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, all these legally binding words, all of these covenantal words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am that God. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, the self-existent one, the one who's like no other God. It's the special name for God, the special name for God. That's almost nameless. That's why he said, I am. Don't compare me to anyone else. But he starts the commandments by reminding everyone who he is. I, I rescued you from Egypt, from slavery, and so, yes, you're ob- obligated. Uh, and if I'm the only one true and living God, yes, you're obligated. And then we have the ten. The ten. We looked at the first four last week. I'll, over, I'll quickly review those, and I'll give you some, some extra things you didn't get last week so you don't feel cheated. Um, but I want to bring everybody else along and we'll see how far we get in this list of 10. And, and remember this, the 10 are bullet points. Uh, th- these are encapsulated. Um, th- th- they're meant to be brief, but they're meant to encapsulate a whole lot. Uh, how do we explain encapsulated? Uh, I don't know if they still do this or not, but when I was a kid and they had advertisements for medicine, uh, they would have the two sides of the capsule that you would take if you were taking some kind of headache medicine or whatever it was. Uh, and, and then they would show it opening up and these, you know, look, look like thousands of little beads falling out and that's the medicine inside. So it's encapsulated. It, it, even if you're not as old as I am, you, you get the concept. In this capsule, in these bullet point commandments, there, there's tons involved. And that's why actually all the way through Deuteronomy, so we have Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you have the unpacking. You have the unpacking of these bullet points. So there's a lot more that can be said, but before he gets into the details, he gives us the the, 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 the punchlines, if you will, the Ten Commandments in simplified form. So first commandment, verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. So loyalty, loyalty to me, absolute loyalty, loyalty to me. I am, I am the I am. I am Yahweh. There is no other God. It only makes sense that you would treat me as if I'm God because I'm the only one who is God. I'm authoritative. I'm wise. I'm for my people. I just redeemed them out of Egypt. And so allegiance to me and allegiance to me alone. And that's first on purpose because now you don't have to ask the question, what right do you have to tell me what to do? He has all the rights because he's God. Okay, review. We're reviewing quickly. We, how far will we get today? When, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how the Spirit of God leads us. Okay, let's go to number two. Second commandment. Complementing the first, relating to worship. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And I'll remind you, that would have been countercultural for them. They're used to images. They're used to idolatry. They're, they've been surrounded by it. And so this is, this is countercultural. Maybe this is going to offend the grandparents and the traditions or whatever it is. You, you don't get any worship aids, if you will. And somebody might be thinking, I'm, I, but I'm a visual learner. 
Well, lots of us are visual learners, but in this case, it's not going to help you learn what's true. It's not going to be helpful. No visual aids because God is, think about it. It's logical. God's the creator of all things. And so to somehow create some drawing or some carving of any thing would not reflect reality because all of the things were made by him. There's a distinction. It's a huge distinction. And so, so don't do that. Uh, by definition, as I mentioned last week, it would be blasphemous, which is a big religious word that just means lying. It wouldn't be telling the truth. It wouldn't reflect reality. And so no worship aids, no carved images. Remember John chapter 4, 24, Jesus says God is spirit. He's so serious about this, he's going to liken people who do the images as those who hate him in verse 5. How about this, though? This is new from, not, I didn't mention it last week. And I'm thankful some of you asked me about Jesus last week. And I think it's always great when you ask me about Jesus. John 1.18 says this, No one has ever seen God. That's pretty important. So, you know, when you read the book that's an evangelical bestseller and the person says, I went to heaven and I saw God the Father and he's six foot two, you know it's a ruse. <laughs> you know they didn't see God the Father because you can't see God the Father and he's not six foot two. They're just wanting your money. Okay? No one has seen God. That's what John 1 says. So we wouldn't do any images. Pretty straightforward. And you think, that seems kind of mean. <laughs> Not if it's true. The mean thing is to manipulate people to get them to believe something that's not true. If it's true that God is spirit and no one has ever seen him, it's really good to know that. So don't make, don't make any images. Now, this is really interesting. Hope I have your attention. If we keep reading in John 1, 18, it says, after no one has ever seen God... It says the only God who is at the Father's side, oh, he has made him known. Who's that talking about? You know the answer. Just guess. Sunday school, right? Jesus is the answer. Jesus has uniquely, extraordinarily, supremely, even visibly made God known. Pretty interesting, pretty fascinating. Theologians who are smarter than I am, I think are on the right track when they say things like this. There is an inseparable connection between the second commandment and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Here's what Ed Clowney, who has a funny name, but he's a good theologian, says. Ed Clowney says, the fulfillment of the second commandment is the birth of Jesus Christ. I don't know if he's right or not, but I think he's on to something. He goes on to say this, the father has offered us a true image to worship and his jealousy is aroused if we choose anything but the incarnate Lord Jesus as the focus of our worship. Jesus is the true and only object of worship. Think about that. <laughs> Having said all that, that I think is really onto something. It's always been waiting for Jesus in the incarnation. I don't think it's by accident or mistake that Mr. Kodak wasn't alive when Jesus was on earth. 
I don't think it's by accident that Jesus came when he came and we didn't have cameras. We don't know what he looks like. And so in our tradition, in the tradition of Reformed theology, um, we don't have images even of Jesus that we approve of. Because we don't know what he looked like. This is the age, this is the era of not seeing Jesus. As my friend and our friend as a church, David Van Druden, likes to say. This is the age of not seeing Jesus. It's the age of the Spirit. And we're longing for the day when we see the ultimate beatific vision. When we see Christ, the Bible says, and we're made like Him. And we're longing for that day. And I think he's right about that as well. It's why church confessions, Reformed Protestant confessions, say we we don't have images. just leads to idolatry. Okay, let's keep moving. See, I told you I was going to give you some new stuff. Thank you for asking, how does Jesus fit into all of this? Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. So no genuflecting, no serving, no worshiping, no adoration. And here's why. I, the Lord, am a jealous God. And ever so quickly, let me remind you that it's not a petty jealousy. It's a legitimate jealousy. And if you are the one true and living God, it would be wrong for you to not be jealous. It just makes sense. Okay, let's keep moving. It says in verse 5, here's how serious it is. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. That's how serious he is about it. It affects not just you, but it affects your family and it'll affect other families. This is not a good trajectory. It's not a good history. Don't have that be your heritage. Verse 6 says, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's good to worship God rightly as he's revealed himself. And it not only benefits you, but it benefits others. It benefits your family. It's the good and right approach. Number three, third commandment of 10. Verse 7 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Did you hear the news about Jeopardy this week? Anybody? On Jeopardy, I think it was June 13th, according to my notes, person was looking to win $53,999. Here's the, here's the question. Matthew 6, 9 says, Our Father, which art in heaven, blank be thy name. Da, 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 da. Is that the theme for Jeopardy? Guess how many people knew the answer? Nobody knew the answer! <laughs> so... <laughs> How bizarre is that? What does that have to do with this? Because of who God is, hallowed be thy name. Even the New Testament reflects the Old Testament. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. It just means take it casually. It means trivially. It means without thought about what is actually true about the Lord. Okay, that's the gist of the idea. Don't be frivolous. Don't be insincere. Don't be thoughtless. When you speak about God, speak appropriately. When you speak about, uh, speak to God, speak appropriately. When you take an oath, do so sincerely, seems to be the concept and the idea. Now, some Christians and some other, uh, some Christians and Jews also, in a sense, have attempted, I'm qualifying this, to take it so seriously that they won't even do what? 
They won't even say the name, the, the proper name for God. I say Yahweh, not to be offensive to those who don't want to say Yahweh. I say Yahweh. I think you should say Yahweh, which is the Hebrew name for God, one of them, because it's revealed to us in Scripture and it reflects who He really is. But some would refer to Yahweh as, you ready for this? Ready for theology class? The ineffable tetragrammaton. And you need to know that to get to heaven. <laughs> you don't. Okay? The unspeakable four-letter name, because it's four letters in Hebrew. The ineffable tetragrammaton. We, we see God as so hallowed, so holy, that we don't even want to say his name. And I kind of like that style. But I think it crosses over into legalism. We want to know God for who he really is. It's why we have so many different names for him that reflect who he really is. And one really important name is Yahweh. The self-existent, sovereign, great God who is transcendent, who is different, who is loyal to his people, committed to the very end. And we could go on and on thoughtfully, carefully talking about who God is. When you talk about God, be careful, be purposeful, be biblical, because we're talking about the greatest subject matter, if I can even say that, ever to be considered. Some of you are thinking, I thought I just had to do a swearing. It's not a good idea to swear. How about that? It's not a good idea to swear using God's name. I mean, as in cursing. But it means so much more than that. That's why I saved that for last. Should we keep going? How many are we going to... This is just review. This is fun. Okay, let, let's do the next one. Fourth commandment. We did four last week. Maybe we'll just do four this week. We'll just do this all summer. <laughs> Number four. Fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Sabbath means rest. Holy means different, distinct, separate, not ordinary. And so there's a, a unique day set apart. And we'll learn more about this as we read through Exodus. It's a huge biblical theme throughout, actually. It actually shows up before Exodus. But we should probably read the text. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Verse 11 says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And I won't reiterate all of the different reasons why this is good and appropriate and right. I'll just remind you that it really is a major, major theme in Scripture. We're imitating God. Uh, it's because of that. It's because they were redeemed out of Israel. And so that's part of it in Deuteronomy. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 talks about an ultimate Sabbath rest that those of us who are believers in Jesus have already entered into. He's our ultimate rest. And we're already ultimately resting if we're believing in Jesus. We're looking forward to that ultimate Sabbath rest. It's appropriate. It's good. And it's right. Now, for Christians, we worship on the first day of the week. Because of the resurrection and because of the example of the early church, it's kind of fascinating theologically to think we rest on the first day and we work flowing out of our rest, which is a good way of looking at things, even wanting to obey God because 
we're safe and secure because of Jesus' work on our behalf. I won't review all of the stuff from last time because we need to plow some new ground. Number five, the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother and your mother. Honor your father and your mother. Happy Father's Day. It's a good text for Father's Day. This is important enough to have it be in the New Testament also. It's in Ephesians. Honor your father and your mother. It's a word that's, if you want to try to carry it over literally, give your mother and your, did you say, yeah, father and mother. Give them a lot of weight. But the idea is significance. So you have other relationships. You have friends. You have other relatives. You may have siblings. But you know, the most important relationship that you have on planet Earth, that's the idea. Now, there are bad parents. There are evil, wicked fathers and mothers. But speaking in general terms, which the Bible does here, remember this, boys and girls, your parents, newsflash, know more than you do. And they know more than your friends do. And they care more about you than your friends do. Give that relationship priority. Give it the most weight. Honor your father and mother. Give that relationship more weight than the other relationships. And if you need more reasons, I can give you 233,000 reasons why you should honor your father and mother. Why 233,000 reasons? Because when I asked my, I won't say, my, my phone yesterday, how much it costs to raise a child in America, it said without college, 233,000 dollars. You know what? You might want to honor your father and mother. It would only make sense. It's the only logical thing to do. Right? My parents weren't perfect. I'm not a perfect parent. I'm a sinner who needs a savior. But generally speaking, parents know more than their kids do. And they've loved them extraordinarily. And you know what happens when a culture loses sight of this? Bad things happen. You know what happens when a culture loses sight of the significance of having a father and a mother? I know it's not always possible. There are exceptions. But as the general rule, when a culture loses sight of having a mother and a father and children who have mothers and fathers, catastrophe happens. We're trying to make it normal in our country right now. How's it going for us? It says in verse 12, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You see the principle? When you do what makes sense, good things happen. That's the principle. That's the idea. When you don't do what makes sense, you wonder, why, why is life so terrible? Why, why, why are things so bad? Well, maybe there's an obvious reason. That's, that's the gist of it. That's what, that's what it's getting at. This is common sense. It's what anchors a society and a people. 
This is probably as good a time as any for us to talk about what sometimes we call natural law. I mentioned it last week. So we have God's inscripturated law. We have scripture, but we also have the creation and the created world and the created world order. And we call that natural law. I want to point out to you right now, as I mentioned last week, that the Ten Commandments really reflect natural law. That's what they do. Now, I know they're inscripturated, but they really reflect just what makes sense. They reflect what's common sense to people. Here's a textbook definition of natural law. Natural law, in short, refers to God's basic moral will for the human race. Revealed in the created order itself, such that all people have the capacity to understand and respond to it, although they also sinfully distort it. Just what makes sense. You don't have to have to be a Christian, in other words, to come to a lot of right conclusions about how things make sense. Right? Lots of cultures have said, you know what, it's really good to have a mom and a dad for children, and that would just make a lot of sense. We'll just look at the statistics and we'll just look at how things work. And that just is Natural law kind of stuff. Romans chapter 2 talks about natural law. Romans chapter 2 verse 15 says, They shall they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So Romans chapter 2 15, verse 15 is an important verse when it comes to this because even unbelievers have a law written on their hearts. Okay? It doesn't mean they always obey that law. It definitely doesn't mean that. That's why we need salvation. But you need to know as a Christian... And our Christian heritage has, has affirmed this for a long time. Special revelation, general revelation. God has two volumes, if you will, in his library, right? We have the, the, the special revealed revelation that's inscripturated, but we also have another volume that's the book of nature, theologians call it. The Ten Commandments reflect this. This is why our churches. Confession says the same law that listen to this, the same law that was first written on in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments. Some of you look like I was making this stuff up. So I just wanted to say I'm in really good company with lots of other Christians to say, oh, there was law before there was law. We have actually seen hints of this in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 28, keep my commandments and my laws. Now, I'm not very smart, but I know that Exodus 16 comes before Exodus 20. (laughs) He was already saying, keep my commandments. He was already saying, keep my laws, but it hadn't been given yet. Because God has always had laws and he's always had commandments. What we have in the Ten Commandments would be this special inscripturating, if you will, written down. And then what we're going to see later on is then he's going to, be, going to uniquely apply it to the nation of Israel because they're a unique nation. And then he's going to uniquely apply it to the nation of Israel that also has a sacrificial system that also has priests. And so it's going to get specific for Israel, but you just have to know this didn't just fall out of the sky. The principles, the bullet points existed beforehand and they exist after and they will always exist because they're the basics about what is true. You say, why are you telling us all of this? I'm telling you all of this because these are just things that make sense. Sometimes we deny them, but they're just things that make sense. Now let's go back to that Texas headline. I I told you we'd go back to that and 
it would be a fascinating conversation to have. But we're not going to do open mic today. We, we would be here all day. I'd want to do it after the sermon anyway. But would it be a good idea to mandate that all public schools in Texas are required to post the Ten Commandments? I'd like to talk about pros and cons, objections, nuances, affirmations. We won't do it this morning. I just want you to be reminded of this. That every teacher, every administrator, every parent, every aide, every janitor, every you fill in the blank associated with all schools in Texas has the law of God written on their hearts. And they actually already know it. There are Ten Commandments walking everywhere in every school. Because deep down inside, though we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, Romans 1, Romans 2 teaches, law of God's written on everybody's heart. Everybody knows what's right and wrong. Everybody has a sense about what's right and wrong. We're going to get to don't murder. Guess what? Everybody knows that's wrong. Right. Children, obey your parents. Everybody knows that that's reasonable. 233, 100,000 reasons. Just makes sense. So keep some of these things in mind as we, we think about our life. We don't need... Well, just keep these things in mind throughout our time. Sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Verse 13. You shall not murder. So we have the sanctity of the family. Now we have the sanctity of life. All human life. Don't murder. Now remember, these are, a lot of these are put in the negative, but it's, it's meant to, to protect the positive. Life is so good. Life is so important. Family is so good. It's so important. Life is so good. Human, humans made in the image of God are so valuable. You know what? We need a law to protect them and say, don't murder. Murder is wrong. Murder is sinful. It's a violation because human beings are important. We're protecting something great. This is natural law again. Now, there have been deviant cultures who have made murder more normal than not. But when we read history, we say, that was awful. That was terrible. And even Christians read history and go, that was awful. That was terrible. Murder is wrong. Everybody knows murder is wrong. They do. Even if they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I, I did a foolish thing. I've done a lot of foolish things in my life, maybe even recently. But when I was a college pastor, there's probably at least a few of you in this room who were there. But when I was a college pastor, we had a Friday night Bible study on campus. I led a, I think it was Friday night, led a campus ministry. And uh, uh, probably a freshman uh, young person came in after the Bible study. And, and you know, you know everything when you're a freshman in college. and You've been mentored by all of your religious uh, teachers at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. Um, <laughs> Fresh out of English class, probably, or philosophy class, and, and so this young person wanted to debate, they want, they wanted to find me and then debate, uh, because there's no such thing as right and wrong. There are no absolutes. Uh, it's postmodern, everything is gray, everything is negotiable, and here's the foolish thing I did. Well, the, the, the wise thing I did is I said, you, you believe in right and wrong. I know you do. No, I don't. I said, now, if I, Got out my nine millimeter. You see, this went, this went badly. <laughs> I shouldn't have done. <laughs> I've learned a thing or two. Um, and I held it to your head and blew your brains out. Everyone here would know it was wrong. And everyone with 
even an ounce of sanity, including you, would know that it's wrong. So I'm sorry for that illustration. I'm sorry I said it. I had a little bit more tact, but not too much more because I just used it as an illustration. (sighs) I wouldn't do it again. People know that life is important. People who are for abortions know that life is important and they know that it's wrong. Heinously, awfully wrong. I was on a bicycle ride with a former teammate of mine and he knows I'm a Christian, a Christian pastor and theology and he said something, something to the effect, he goes, yeah, but, but we got to talk about abortion. I said, okay. What do you want to talk about? He said... I know you'll tell me the Bible forbids it, but I just, I just can't, I I just can't see how it could be wrong. Something to that effect. And I said, you know what? You're right. The Bible forbids it. But I also said, and you know that it's wrong. You know that when you go to get the ultrasound with your wife and you say, oh, it's a boy. And you're so happy that you shed tears you know that abortion is wrong because you know life is right. These are common sense things built in the fiber of humanity and when we violate them, bad things happen. But don't let anyone ever try to convince you that eh, we don't know the difference between right and wrong. We know the difference between right and wrong. Life is so important. I do want to point out to you that the word that's used here that he uses is the word for murder. It's never used, at least according to New Testament commentators. I didn't check all of their work, but it's never used in context of war. It's never used in the context of capital punishment. It's never used in the context of self-defense. Genesis 9-6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So if you want a proof text to show the legitimacy, at least here for capital punishment, there it actually is. And it's there in the Bible because human life is so important. It's not murder. It's taking a life because a life has been taken. It's a different category. Lest we think we're all good feeling good about ourselves because we've never murdered anybody or something like that. Let me just remind you that when Jesus is on earth, Jesus doesn't contradict any of these things, but in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, if, if you will, peels the layers back a little bit so that we can actually see the heart of the matter. And he says, I'm paraphrasing. If you've thought hateful thoughts against someone, you're guilty as if you committed murder. My paraphrase. So see, the law is not good news. (laughs) The law is good, but it's actually not good news. The Sermon on the Mount is not meant to cause us to say, oh, I'm such a good person. (laughs) It's meant to cause us to say, the law is good, but I don't measure up knowing my heart. And so I need Jesus, the good law keeper in my place. Number seven. Can we do one more? Let's do one more, at least. Number seven. You, verse 14, if you want to look there with me, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. So let's remember, 
It's protecting something good. Marriage is good. Sex in marriage is good. Both are from God and to be celebrated. Read, read Proverbs 5. Maybe not right now. And so it's to be protected. God is not out to spoil everybody's fun. So we've seen sanctity of family, sanctity of life, and now we have sanctity of marriage. Protect that special kind of relationship. Adultery is sexual activity outside of husband and wife marriage. Now, I mentioned earlier that these are bullet points. That that just captures the norm. The standard is when you're thinking about sexual activity and you're thinking about relationships and you're talking to adults, not everybody's married in the world, but it's, it's, it's the norm. You have a husband, you have a wife, and you know what? That relationship needs to be protected. And so no adultery. But what we are going to see is the unpacking that happens as we keep going in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. We probably won't study all those together. I'll be in heaven by then. But he doesn't. He doesn't mean to limit this to only adultery. That, that's just a way to capture the big idea, right? The low-lying fruit. And he's going to get into homosexuality. He's going to get into bestiality. He's going to get into fornication and other things that are important. But if you really just want to capture the big idea, sex is for marriage between a man and a woman. That, that's it. It's simple, straightforward. And not everybody follows that. Lots of people who aren't even Christians do, though. You want human flourishing? You want happiness? You want health? You want somebody to, somebody to be there for you when you have cancer and are dying? And on and on it goes, good times and in bad times? Sanctity of marriage. That's what's going on here. Protect that relationship. And if we study biology, and we study human civilization... And we say, what works and what doesn't work? We're going to say, you know what works? Amazing. Natural law. And inscripturated law. It's in both places. It's in both places. So since it is June and it's Gay Pride Month, it doesn't make any sense. And everybody knows it doesn't make any sense. Even Christians, or excuse me, even non-Christians know. This isn't good for a culture. This isn't good for society. This isn't good for families. This isn't good for procreation. This isn't good for, did I already say civilization? And you say, why are you talking about that right now? This says adultery because it's the bullet point that is loaded with all of the implications that are going to get unpacked as we read the rest of the Bible. And if you're offended by what I said, thank you for listening and I do want you to know that, Lord willing, when you come around to my position, if I have enough birthdays, if I live long enough, I'll be here. Time will reveal the truth on this one. And so I would say, I love you because I've been loved as a sinner, so I love fellow sinners. The truth will win. And in time, hopefully sooner than later, I just want you to know that Omaha Bible Church will be here for you. And many men and women, saints, will say, welcome. We're glad.
Jesus said in Matthew 19, 4, He, God, who created them from the beginning, made them male and female. Jesus understood natural law. And he also understood inscripturated law. I believe that the one who was raised from the dead knows more than any of you do. He knows more than I do. I'm trusting him for my eternal destiny. And he says, Matthew 19, in case you need to look it up. This is how it's always been, my paraphrase. This is how God made the world. He made them male and female. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. But not everybody affirms it. They suppress the truth because of sin. Remember this, and I'll keep saying this. God's law is good. It leads to human flourishing. It leads to good things happening. That's why he says things like, you'll live long in the land. God's law is good. We're not good at keeping God's law. Salvation doesn't come to those who are heterosexual. Everyone is sinful. We all sin in different ways. The law is good. We're not good. And we're not good at keeping God's law. But you have to know that Jesus Christ said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. He did everything perfectly. He did so so that if you trust in him, God sees you as if you did everything perfectly. And not only that, then he makes atonement. Atonement brings forgiveness for all of my wrongdoing. And he was raised from the dead on behalf of everyone who would ever trust in him. So the law is good, but we're not good at keeping God's law. But Jesus is really good at keeping God's law. Perfectly so. And now remember this. So the law is good. We're not, but Jesus is. Trust in him. And the good law no longer is something we have to be terrified of. Because we're safe. And it frees us up to live boldly, to want to do the right thing. Even though we fail and we stumble. The psalmist says, it's a light unto our path. It guides us from dangerous things and things that are harmful and things that don't lead to good things happening. And we say, we love your law, O Lord. As believers, we need to be done this morning. We'll do the other commandments next time. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he came to fulfill all righteousness. We come to you as sinners of various different kinds. We're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ who honored his mother and father perfectly. We're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ who never lusted. We're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ who did everything perfectly, even though he was tempted even by the devil himself. And we say, hallelujah, what a savior. Now it is our desire to do the right thing. We, we, we want to honor relationships and we want to honor our relationship with you. We want to follow your laws because of salvation in Christ. May it be so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.